You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 2. We will read together these first 12 verses. John, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some of out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Let's pray together. Our Father, having your word in our hands is a gift, one that we often take for granted. We thank you that we have it and that we can read it when we want. We ask now, Father, that you would also give to us the gift of illumination by your spirit, that you would teach us in your word, that our time spent here would be for the equipping and edifying of your saints, that you would be pleased with this, and that you would visit now your people in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I made mention uh, of the fact that Jewish weddings and American weddings are quite different. They're similar in a lot of respects, but there are also some striking differences. And one of the most notable, I think, is that in a Jewish wedding in the culture in Jesus' day, it was the groom who picked up the tab for all that went on. He was expected to put on a feast and a celebration, a ceremony that was worthy of the woman to whom he was betrothed and was going to have her in as, in, as a wife. In American culture, it's the bride's family typically that picks up the tab for the weddings. And so when I was, uh, when we first had our first child, it was a daughter, and I started to think that the Jewish way of doing that would have been a really good idea to have the groom's family pick it up. And then we had a son, and then I realized, well, it's going to be a wash, so I guess that's nothing to really campaign for. Then we had another daughter, and I started to think seriously again about the whole idea of having the, the husband pick up the tab and and then we had another son, and so then it was a wash again. And I've come up with a solution. What I have to do is I have to find two Jewish men to marry my daughters and two Gentile women to marry my sons, and then I'm scot-free. I'm home-free. All four weddings will be paid for by somebody else. That occurred to me last week on the way home from church. And since I'm going to be arranging the marriages, I think it will be relatively easy to accomplish that, and I'll let you know how that works out. So we're back in John chapter 2 now, and last week we just made our way halfway through this first miracle in Cana of Galilee. We looked at the place that the miracle took place, and then we looked at the problem which occasioned the miracle. The problem was a serious one, not one that in our culture we really fully understand, simply because we're somewhat distanced from the Jewish culture and the Jewish way of doing things. 
But when the wine ran out, it presented a number of obstacles and problems and potential embarrassments for a Jewish couple. First, there was the social stigma that would be attached to that. I mean, there's a social expectation that when you take a woman's hand in marriage, that you provide a feast, a celebration that's worthy of the woman that you are taking in marriage. The fact that the wine ran out may be an indication that they were a poorer couple or that he was a poor, uh, a, one of the poorer grooms, and so he couldn't provide something of that quality or substance and level that people would be accustomed to. There would be the also the, the legal problem with the fact that this was expected of the groom to put some on something like this. And if he didn't live up to his end of the bargain, then the bride and her family could come back and seek damages from the groom, and he would be liable for that. I mean, there was sort of a, a reciprocating reciprocity to the arrangement, the agreement. You give me your daughter for marriage, and I will provide a celebration and a feast. And that was the idea. It was a quid pro quo sort of agreement. You do this, and I'll do that, and you do your part, I'll do mine. If the wine ran out and the feast sort of dissolved before everything really had a chance to reach its full celebration, then the groom would be look like he hadn't fulfilled his end of the bargain. And this, of course, would just create conflict between the families. But there was also sort of a financial problem that this posed to the young couple. The the expectation, the reciprocal sort of agreement in a wedding extended not just between the groom's family and the bride's family, but also with the guests. When the guests came to the feast and the ceremony, they would bring a gift, and in exchange for their gift, they expected a feast and a celebration. So Mr. Levi would show up at the wedding feast, and he would bring his, his goat or his lamb, so to speak, and he would go to give this to the couple, and then... He would get to the feast and the wine would run out. Mr. Levi might just very well take his goat or his sheep that he had brought to the feast, turn around and leave with it. And if the groom and the bride are expecting to live off of those gifts in the beginning of their marriage, then you can see that if all of their guests get up and take their gifts with them and walk away, that, that what that would do for them, it would put them in a financial pinch. And so nobody would think less of Mr. Levi for taking his sheep and going away because that would be what would be expected in that culture. It was very reciprocal. I bring a gift. You provide the feast. You don't provide the feast, I take my gift and I walk away. This would harm the couple. It would hurt the couple. Now don't tell me you haven't attended a wedding where you thought about getting up, taking your gift and leaving. I know I have. Well, in our culture, it would be looked down upon. Not in that culture, it was actually expected it was part of it. So Jesus' act of turning the water into wine not only saved them the social embarrassment, it saved them the legal and financial problems between the two families, it also saved them financially and provided not just for the feast so that the guests wouldn't leave with their gifts, but also provided abundantly for this couple wine that they would be able to use after the feast over the course of the next year. It was an abundant gift. So we looked at the place in which the miracle took place, the problem that occasioned the miracle. Now third, we move on to verse 6, and we're going to look at the provision of the miracle itself, the provision of the miracle itself, and then verse 11, we'll look at the point of the miracle. <coughs> I apologize for my voice and my throat. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Why don't you stop just there? If you were to attend the feast with Jesus and his disciples, and you were to walk into Cana, and you've been invited, you're going to the wedding feast, you would walk in, first you would walk into some sort of an entryway, a foyer of sorts, and in that foyer would be where the servants would be at, the servants would be milling around, and as the guests would come in, you would find water pots, stone water pots, that were set there in the entryway. Before you went into the feast proper, before you went into where the food was being served, you had to wash. And the Jews ceremonially washed their hands meticulously before eating and after eating. 
And so you would walk into the foyer and the servants would be there. They would be attending to the water pots, making sure that there was fresh water, clean water, that the water pots were full, adequate water, giving instruction to the guests, welcoming people, making sure that the needs were met. And then you would ceremonially wash your hands. Now with the Jews, the whole issue of hand washing was a, a meticulous one. Like with most of the other Old Testament laws, the Jews had taken the the laws and the policies of hand washing and ceremonial cleanliness and they had heaped upon them all sorts of traditions. All sorts of traditions that made the simple act of hand washing such a burdensome, onerous task to the Jewish people that it was almost absurd. Well, that's what the six water pots were full uh, for, filled with water, and as you came in, you would wash your hands. Well, the Pharisees had heaped upon that practice of hand washing all kinds of policies and procedures and strict requirements, and you had to do it just so for so much time, and they had all of this stuff laid out, not from the Old Testament law, but in all of their traditions that they had handed down, where they took the Old Testament law and said, if you want to really fulfill it, here's what you have to do. You have to follow all of these requirements. These were the things that were added on top of them. You probably remember an episode, it's in Mark chapter 7, where Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees over this issue of hand washing. And it says in Mark 7, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him, that is Jesus, when they had come from Jerusalem and they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed hands. Verse 3 says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Of course, then the Pharisees said to Jesus, why do your disciples eat with unclean hands? This was something that was huge to them. If you were to walk into the wedding feast and sort of skip past the water pots and not wash your hands before you went in to eat, it would be seen by everybody there as either gross ignorance or gross impiety and irreverence. So much did they value the issue of washing hands that if you were to walk past the water pots, they would view it as impiety or ignorance. You just couldn't go in and just eat. There was a big ceremony of hand washing, and that's what the stone water pots were for. They used stone instead of clay because the clay would absorb some of the water, and thus in their minds become impure, so they used stone because stone was impervious, wouldn't absorb the water, and so they could kind of keep the water circulating in there and, and add new water as time went on and people used the water. So it's unclean water that's sitting in these water pots as people would sort of dip their hands and take water out and wash their hands in this. The servant's job was to keep the water fresh in there, but it was always kind of milky uh, water pots there that, were, that they were dealing with. Now, by the way, let me, this is on an aside. Do you notice that John says this was for the Jewish ritual of purification, the Jewish custom of purification? See that in verse 6? The Jewish custom of purification, Jewish cleansing customs. Let me ask you a question. Can you think of anything else in John chapter 2 that is cleansed? Can you think of anything Jewish in John chapter 2 that is cleansed? The temple. I told you last week there's a thematic connection between the turning of the water into wine from these water pots which were used for Jewish purification and the cleansing of the temple which takes place later. That's part of that connection. I just want you to file that away in the back of your mind and we'll develop it over the course of the next couple weeks as we look at the cleansing of the temple. That's part of the thematic connection between these two events. The stone water pots and the temple. There is a symbolism Not an allegory. There is a symbolism and there's a connecting theme between these two events. So moving on to verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots up with water. And so they filled them up to the brim. 
So the water pots would not have been full. They would have been partially empty, partially used. And Jesus gave them the instruction as per Mary's instruction to the servants. They did exactly what he said. And he said to them, fill the water pots up all the way to the brim. And they did all the way to the brim. Now I ask you, why did Jesus fill the water pots up with water first? Could he not have simply turned what was there into wine? Certainly he could have. Could he not have taken an empty water pot and created wine and filled it up, an empty water pot? Yes, certainly he could have done that. It's no more difficult for him to create wine out of thin air and fill an empty water pot than it is for him to take a full water pot and turn it into wine. Why then the detail that they filled them all the way up to the brim? And by the way, I think that the filling them all the way up to the brim was per Jesus' instruction. I think knowing what he was going to do, that's what Jesus was asking for. Fill them up all the way to the very top. Why all the way to the very top? I think two things are going on, and and this is speculation, sanctified speculation, I hope, but since John doesn't tell us why, I think there's a couple things going on. First, I think that it, Jesus does this in order to demonstrate that there was absolutely no room for anybody to say, oh, he added something to the the pots while we weren't looking. Uh, The disciples brought in the wine, and while the servants weren't looking, they sort of snuck it out of their robes and poured it into the water pots and filled them all up. It was just a trick. It was a sleight of hand. Filling them all the way up to the brim, as John's indication, there was no room for anything to be added. This is a transforming miracle where something impure and unclean and dirty and ordinary is changed into something pure and clean and extraordinary. It's a transformation miracle. It's not a sleight of hand, and there was nothing that was added to the pots in order to make it wine. Second, I think it does indicate to us the abundance of this provision. John says that these water pots were filled up to the brim. Each one, the King James, I love this, says two to three first skins apiece. A first skin was about somewhere around nine gallons. So you're looking at between 20, and some of the more modern translations actually do the conversion for us, between 20 and 30 gallons apiece. Times six water pots, that's how many gallons? 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That is substantial provision. And Jesus, knowing what he was going to do, ask that they be filled all the way up to the brim, I think in order to preclude any kind of natural or sleight of hand explanation to demonstrate his miraculous power, and then also to provide abundantly above what they would need. What would they need for the rest of the feast? Not 180 gallons of wine. They wouldn't need that. What would they need for the rest of the feast? Part of the feast has already gone by. You're only dealing with providing for part of a feast, not a whole feast. So they have only a couple of days left. They're not going to need 180 gallons of wine. They didn't drink wine like that. They didn't drink alcoholic beverages like they do in our culture today. He wouldn't need that. So what is Jesus doing? He's not only meeting a need, he is providing over and above, abundantly so, more than they would need. He could have just turned a gallon in the bottom of each container to wine, and that probably would have been sufficient maybe for the rest of the feast, or two gallons or three gallons. But he provides for this family, not just to save them from the social stigma, but they would have wine left over after the celebration that would last them until the next harvest. Now, look what happens in verse 8. He said to them, draw out some now and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. And the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from. Why does John tell you that? Because if he had known that he was drinking what was formerly the hand-washing water in the pots, I don't think he would have tasted it. And the servants knew what had happened. Mary knew what had happened. Some of his disciples watched what had happened. And he filled it up to the brim. And this must have been an astonishing miracle in and of itself. You're looking at six water pots that are full of water one minute. And then suddenly, 
meeting both your eyes and your nose is the realization, this is wine. Instantly so, it is transformed. And the servants drew it out, and they took it to the head waiter. And if I was a servant, I would have been laughing all the way. Oh, if he only knew what he's about to drink. And he handed it to the head waiter, but it was no longer unclean or impure water. It was wine. It wasn't wine mixed with impure hand-washing water. It was substantially changed entirely and completely transformed. It was no longer the water at all. It had become wine. Look what the head waiter says. So they took it to him, and the head waiter tasted the water. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poor wine. And he's just describing the custom of the day. And the word having drunk freely, every time it's used in the New Testament, is translated to get drunk. And that's what it means. That's what the head waiter is describing. The custom of the day was, and the typical expectation was, that at a feast like this, you would put out the best wine first. Why? Because people's palates were sensitive, and they could taste the difference between good wine and poor wine. But after people became drunk, then you would slip in the inferior wine, and people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And by that time, they didn't care. After three or four days of sort of eating and celebrating and drinking, they would have been accustomed to the taste. You could slip in the poorer wine afterwards, and uh, people wouldn't have been able to know because they would have been fully filled up with the wine. Now listen... The head waiter is not describing the marriage feast that's going on here. He's not saying the guests here were drunk. He's simply describing the, te- the customary practice of the day. Bring out the good stuff. When people have drunk their fill, then you bring out the poor stuff and you sort of slip that in and nobody can notice. He is commenting on the quality of the wine, not on the condition of his guests. That's key. There's no indication whatsoever that the guests at this wedding feast were drunk or getting drunk, or that they were using this wine for those purposes. He's simply describing the quality of what Jesus had changed the water into. The best wine, it was better than what they previously had. Now listen, there's some people who with this whole issue of Jesus turning water into wine, and maybe you're thinking this in your own mind, get almost apoplectic about it. Jesus turning water into wine, I don't know what to do with that. It's wine, is it really wine, or was it just grape juice, just fruit of the vine? Wine, uh, grapes ripen between June and September. This feast probably happened somewhere in February or March. Verse 13 says the Passover was near. So this happened early in the spring. In that day, they didn't have the ability to refrigerate or to preserve. And so you could make grape juice. But by the time it got to the time of this feast, it would have fermented. There was no way to keep that from happening. And they did that. Now, the Jews in that day used to take wine and they would dilute it with water, sometimes up to a one to 10 ratio. The reason being is the alcohol in the uh, wine would kill all of the bacteria and the germs in the water. They didn't have pure water like you and I have flowing out of a thing. They would take uh, basically clear mud and they would mix some wine with, wine with it and uh, mix it just a little bit of wine, which would kill all the bacteria in there, and then they would drink that. They needed to have a drink that they could use to satisfy their thirst without getting drunk. And so they would use wine mixed with water to do that. That's not the only way that the Jews drank wine. The Jews also drank wine just as wine with the alcoholic content in it. And so in the in the Bible, we have God describing wine as something that he has blessed, something that he gives. You see wine spoken positively of in different passages in the Old Testament and in the New, where it's not condemned, where wine is seen as an evidence of God's blessing. It is something that makes man's heart glad or joyful. It's something that was used in celebration. It was a, uh, an evidence of the enjoyments of life and all that came with it. If you had an abundance of wine, you had an abundance of provision. That's the way they looked at it. The Jews in that day did not drink wine the way we drink wine today. The Jews in that day did not drink wine to get drunk. Some of them did. 
But the Bible describes in positive terms wine itself. And I think that you and I can sort of avoid getting our gitch in a hitch over this whole issue of wine if we just sort of try and walk between one of two extremes. The one extreme is to make what happened here something other than it was. It was wine. It was wine that they provided at the beginning. It was wine that ran out. It was wine that Jesus turned the water into. That's all there is to it. It wasn't just grape juice. And it's not being honest with the text to try and say that Jesus only created grape juice. If that were true, then the head waiter statement wouldn't make any sense. Most people put out the good grape juice at the beginning, and then when people have become drunk, then they drink the poorer grape juice. You don't get drunk off of grape juice. The head waiter acknowledges that what Jesus provided was of the same quality, and it was the same thing as what they had put out at the beginning of the feast, just that it was better. So it's not honest to say that it was just grape juice. I believe it was wine. The second extreme is to go to the other side and say, hey, this was a big drunken party. And Jesus is a great bartender serving up all kinds of wine. And everybody was getting drunk. And Jesus and the disciples were getting drunk. That is blasphemy. God gives us gifts. And he doesn't condemn the right use and the appropriate use of the gift in the right context. And him providing the gift does not make him liable, nor does it make him to condone the abuse of that gift. It's that way in the marriage physical relationship. That is a gift from God. The abuse of it outside of the right context, in the wrong way, is an abuse of that that God condemns. And I believe that the same thing was going on here. They used wine, yes. They drank wine, yes. But Jesus making water into wine does not condone drunkenness. The Bible always condemns drunkenness, always, without exception. In fact, the passages that condemn wine or speak negatively of wine speak negatively of wine in the context of people abusing wine in order to get drunk and misusing that gift. So that's going to get me in trouble with, I don't know, half the people here or something, depending on what side of that extreme you want to be on. I have no problem with Jesus turning water into wine and condoning its right use in this culture, whether that was diluting or whether it was using it in moderation in a celebration like this. Jesus never, ever condoned or provided for drunkenness or sin in that way. Now, verse 11. The point. We've looked at the place and the problem, and this is the provision, the abundance of it. Now, what is the point of the whole miracle? Why does Jesus do this? I told you last week it's significant. It's significant because John records this. No other gospel writer does. John gives a lot of detail to it, and it's significant because it's Jesus' first miracle. So look at verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That verse itself is worth a whole sermon just in itself, but what you're going to watch right now is self-control in practice. I'm going to Resist the temptation to do that and simply cover this really briefly because we've dealt with this in the past and we will deal with it in the future in the Gospel of John. The miracle is called a sign. And in the New Testament, miracles are called signs, sometimes signs and wonders. A sign always signified or pointed to something beyond it, something greater than the sign itself. The sign was never an end in itself. Signs or miracles were never performed just for the sake of displaying power or displaying ability to do these things. A sign always pointed or signified something else. It always indicated something greater than itself, beyond itself. The sign pointed like signs do today. When you're driving to Coeur d'Alene and you see a sign that says Coeur d'Alene X number of miles, 
you don't then conclude that you're in Coeur d'Alene, nor do you conclude that the sign itself is Coeur d'Alene. Instead, you understand the sign is signifying or pointing to or giving information about something outside of itself or beyond itself. That's what New Testament signs do, did, including sign gifts like tongues and prophecy and miracles and healing and things of that nature and exorcisms. Those, all those sign gifts pointed to a reality outside of themselves. It's the same with this sign here. There is a point to it. And this sign is intended to point to something beyond just itself. What is it that this sign points to? This sign points to Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, now let me connect chapter 2 to chapter 1. In chapter 1, John has told us, in the beginning was the Word, the eternally existent Word, that one who was the Son from all of eternity. God the Son existed. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life. He is the creator of all things without exception. Nothing exists that does not come into existence by his hand. That word became flesh. Then you get into the end of chapter 1, and you're asking yourself, is there anybody who could testify to that reality who saw him and heard him? Yeah, John the Baptist, John the Apostle, Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel, and Philip. All of those men bore witness to the fact that this was the word made flesh. Well, then you say, you get to chapter 2, I might want some evidence that the creator actually was standing in our midst at one time. No greater miracle could be given to demonstrate his creative ability than this one in John chapter 2. And that is what this miracle points to, that he is the creator of all things. He took water and he turned it into wine. That is a creative miracle. And it is no more difficult for him to create everything out of nothing than it is for him to create wine out of water. And the creation of wine out of water demonstrates that this one is the creator of all things. And it demonstrates his omnipotence. It shows his glory. It shows forth his ability as the word made flesh through whom all things came into being. This sign points to the truth about who this man was. He is the creator of all things. You want evidence? He can turn water into wine. That is a creative miracle. And that's what this sign was demonstrated to, or given to demonstrate and to point to his identity as the Word made flesh. And it had a profound impact on his disciples. They hadn't seen, nobody in Israel had seen anything like this for 500 years. You had the 400 years of silence before Jesus came. Before that, about 100 years taking in the Babylonian captivity and just prior to the Babylonian captivity. No signs, no miracles had been worked by any prophet or any spokesman from God for five centuries. And now was standing in their midst, one who claimed to be the Son of God, who received worship as the Son of God, who acknowledged the truth of what they said when they said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ, the Son of David. You are the miracle worker predicted in the Old Testament. And he demonstrated a sign to show that what they were saying was absolutely true. And it says in verse 11, they believed on him. And they had already confessed their belief in chapter 1, but this miracle strengthened their belief. So what do we learn about Jesus from this miracle? Number one, we can learn that he is the creator of all things in human flesh. He is who he claimed to be. Second, we can learn of our God, God's ability to create and to provide, and abundantly so, for the needs of his people. That, I think, is demonstrated here. Third, and let me just give you a couple other things that I think this demonstrates about Jesus. It should not escape our notice that Jesus attended a wedding. He attended a wedding. His very presence at the wedding was a blessing and a sanctifying of marriage as an institution itself. After all, it was Jesus who was in the garden as God who created man and created woman and brought them together and created the first human institution, which was marriage. 
The first human institution was not the church. The first human institution was not government. It was not commerce. The first human institution was marriage. And God was there in the garden blessing it. And here is Jesus who performs his very first miracle at what is the first human institution, that of marriage. And his presence at marriage sanctifies marriage and shows how God honors it and how God loves it and how God blesses it. Because it is holy in his sight. As we read in our scripture reading this morning, the marriage bed is honorable and undefiled before God. It's a blessing and it is a good thing, marriage. Second, it shouldn't escape our notice that Jesus attended a celebration. Some people have trouble with this. Your your view of Jesus is that he always walked around without a smile on his face and he was dour and sour and looked like he had been baptized in lemon juice. He never had any fun. And when he showed up on the scene, everybody said, shh, 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 quiet, no jokes, no fun, no celebration, no enjoyment whatsoever. Jesus is here. That's not the Jesus of the New Testament. There are times when celebration is appropriate and right. And I picture Jesus with these guests eating, and drinking and enjoying and fellowshipping and conversing and teaching and talking and milling around with people and enjoying what was going on there, everything that was going on there that was not sinful. Anything that was sinful, he would not have partaken in. But you can partake of a celebration and not be sinning. This demonstrates, I think, the difference between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry. Remember John the Baptist? He came out in the wilderness, a recluse, eating locusts and wild honey, sort of away from the people. Jesus was the polar opposite. He did his ministry in the cities. He was with people. He was he was accused of hanging out with sinners and being a wine-bibber and a glutton. False accusations, all of them. But he did hang out with sinners, and he wasn't like John. He wasn't a monk who sort of kept off, cloistered away from sinful humanity. He dwelt among us, the Word made flesh. And he lived among us, and he enjoyed things like celebrations. Third thing that I think is interesting here, and I noticed this. I could have brought this out last week, but I didn't. Do you notice where he revealed his ministry, his glory, and to whom? In Cana of Galilee. You could not pick a more inappropriate town in all of Israel to do your first miracle. If you wanted to demonstrate your glory to the world, why would you pick Cana of Galilee? Jesus did not reveal his glory to all people all of the time in the same way. There were times when he revealed his glory... And there are times when he concealed his glory and he did not reveal his glory. His very first miracle where he reveals his glory is not in the political center of the Roman Empire in Rome. It's not in the intellectual center of the Roman Empire at the Areopagus in Athens. It wasn't even in the religious center of the Jewish nation right down in the temple square. He didn't walk into the Sanhedrin and turn water into wine as a demonstration of his glory. But what did he do? Off in an obscure corner of a of a disdained province like Galilee in a little tiny hick town known as Cana, even more insignificant than Nazareth, nestled against a hillside, only in front of a few servants and his mother and a couple of his disciples, he reveals his glory. Friends, Jesus revealed his glory to some and he concealed his glory from others. Parables were given to reveal truth to some and to conceal truth from others. And you and I can't know all of God's sovereign purposes in revealing his glory to some and concealing his glory from others, or revealing truth to some and concealing truth from others. But I think it does boil down to a general New Testament principle, and this applies back then and it applies today. Jesus did not cast his pearls before swine. He could have demonstrated his glory to the Sanhedrin, but he didn't. Why? Because God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That is why he said concerning the parables, to you it's been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To you, the little, the insignificant, the weak, the little fishermen out in the village, 
not to the religious elite, not to the religious leaders, not to the mighty in the eyes of men, not to the Caesars and not to the Neros and not to the Agrippas and not to all of the people who are esteemed by men, but to the weak and to the little and to the insignificant things. Those are the people to whom God reveals his truth and reveals his glory. He resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. That is why he chose a humble little town, a humble little ceremony, a humble little couple to manifest his glory. Do you notice that the head waiter is not named? The couple is not named? There's nobody in this story that's of any significance except for what? Jesus and his glory. And it all takes center stage. Everything revolves around him. He's the one that stands out in the whole narrative. We don't even know who this couple was. That's insignificant. That's an insignificant detail, a humble detail. What is significant, what is important, is that Jesus manifested his glory and that you and I respond properly. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you that your grace and goodness, that your glory and your truth has been made manifest and known to us. We thank you for the truth of your word and what we can learn about it from our, of our Savior from it. We thank you that our Lord, that you, Lord, provide for all of our needs with such abundance, with such clarity, and with such grace. We thank you that you provide for us not only what we need, but abundantly above and beyond what we can expect or even think. You are good in all of your ways and in all of your dealings. Help us to see that. Help us to see the goodness of our Savior and even this, his first miracle we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.